0: Well, good to be back with you this morning. I apologize for uh, changing directions a bit. Um, From our intended subject, I was hoping to talk about uh, the future realization of our adoption in heaven. It's a great subject, uh, but this sickness kind of held on a bit longer than I'd hoped. I couldn't give enough time um, to that subject. It's a big subject. Um, That being said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 today, and I hope that we'll be able to, of course we will be able to, because it's God's word, find some encouraging things this morning. So 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to read the chapter, and then we'll pray and commit our service to God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder this morning that Christ has appeared. Christ has appeared. We read in Isaiah that as your people disobeyed you constantly and your judgments were revealed, inflicted on them, still your anger was not turned away, such is the nature of sin. And yet, through Christ amazingly, we have one who does turn your anger away. We who were objects of your wrath now invited into your family, into the warmth of fellowship. Lord, I pray for us this morning as we look into your word, um, preserve us from that empty form of faith which is able to grind through the motions the outward observance of religion, and yet there is no nourishment there. Lord, compel our hearts to to be with the Lord of hosts, to see him, to rejoice in him. He is the substance. You are the substance of our faith. So be with us this morning as we look into your word. Give us eyes to see ears to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. <clears throat> what is fellowship? Well, the dictionary defines it kind of broadly as friendly association, especially with people who share one's interests. That's certainly a broad definition, but biblically, fellowship is much more profound than simply friendly association. It's often a word that comes up in discussions about marriage, which tells us something. We find it here in verses 3 and 4, used of those who share a unique relationship with one another Based on their fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Increasingly, we live in a time defined not by its friendly association, but by its rupture, by its disfellowship. We are an increasingly isolated people. We do our shopping online, there are computers to check out our groceries and our library books community organizations everywhere are in serious decline. Uh, Last year, Theresa May appointed the first ever minister of loneliness to hopefully figure out how to deal with this year's epidemic of lonely people. We are also an increasingly polarized people. Many people's impulse today is not towards understanding or empathy or civility, but towards reaction and victimization and defensive maneuvers. Some have turned to religious organizations, only to find that the fellowship that exists in so many of these places only holds together as long as everything is kept light and agreeable and non-confrontational. How did we get here? Can we really blame all this fragmentation on deteriorating social conditions only? Well, I think that's certainly part of it, but there have always been wars and civil unrest and angry mobs throughout history to varying degrees. And that is because the fundamental reason is actually much more ancient and insidious Adam, the first man, he knew fellowship. Eve, the first woman, she knew fellowship. Both of them were told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, once walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. There was friendliness and fellowship between them. That whole fellowship meant that their create, with their creator meant there could be whole fellowship with each other as well. No blaming or resenting each other. No guilt or shame. No fear of intimacy. Day by day they lived completely free to enjoy one another's company. Unhindered. And then sin entered, didn't it? And, does, and did what sin always does. It breaks, it disrupts, it separates. It introduced the opposite of fellowship, which is trying to get away from fellowship, hiding shame and fear at the prospect of fellowship. And Adam's status as race representative means, among other things, that every human being now born into the world since Adam is now an inheritor of that impulse to hide. An inheritor of that aversion and resistance towards fellowship. We enter this world, every one of us, as angry orphans. Determined to stay alienated from the Father, insisting on our separation from eternal life with Him. And as our relationship with God lies in pieces, so our relationship with others, often ends up in pieces. Our divine estrangement can't help but affect our earthly relationships. And so we, sadly, often love it when it is within our power to exclude or withhold love as punishment. We enjoy the sweet taste of gossip and rumor. We long for the prestige of an inner circle of friends just so we can feel superior to others. Titus 3, verse 3. It tells us sin makes us live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It is the fundamental root, sin is, of all disunity in the world. It's not just a problem out there we can fix economically or socially. So long as we are unchanged, so will all the problems around us remain unchanged. Why am I going on about fellowship? Well, because the subject of the book of 1 John, and especially here in these four verses, is all about fellowship. It's all about the restoration and realization of the fellowship that we lost The kind of fellowship that is at the heart of what it is to be human. Deep, restorative fellowship as we're going to see hard-won fellowship. The kind of fellowship of friendship and intimacy that everyone, whether they admit it or not, longs for. More than that has been made for. Maybe you're feeling caught in the middle of disunity this morning. There's discord at work. There's discord within your family. There's discord between friends. Maybe you're even an agent of that disunity. Your preference for your own way, your own ambitions, have hurt others around you. Or maybe you're feeling the futility. Maybe you wouldn't put it in these words. The futility and unease of what it is to live in a world not as a child of God, but as his enemy as a stranger, as an orphan. Well, there's good news in these verses for people like us this morning. It's good news. We're confronted with the main theme of the passage in verse 1. See there, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The content of John's instruction, everything that follows, hinges. It's centered around this subject concerning the word of life. What is this word of life? Well, the word of life is is God's message of redemption and rescue to mankind. Right from the beginning, even after Adam and Eve chose death over life, curse had entered the world god's last word has always been a word of life as opposed to a word of curse that's an amazing thing i don't know whether you've ever read a book where you have two authors alternating chapters arguing back and forth with one another about a topic and i don't know if you have to bribe the publisher to be able to write the last chapter in those books but that's the sweet spot isn't it the last chapter the final chapter always, at least to impressionable people like me, always seems to carry the most weight because there's no chance for rebuttal after the last word. God's last word to us was not the word of a minor prophet, of inevitable judgment against repent unrepentance. Rather, in these last days, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, he has spoken to us by his son. That's God's final word. He is God's final word to date. And we find that God's word, small w, of redemption and life is ultimately inseparable from the word, capital W, of life who is Jesus Christ. You can't separate them. He's the only reason that God's word to us can be eternal life, verse 2, rather than eternal death, which is what we deserve. We're going to ask and answer three questions this morning. First of all, who is this word of life? Second, how does he make himself known? Third and lastly, why did he make himself known? What was the goal of his appearing? We're going to see, hopefully, that his goal has always been to restore fellowship. First of all, who is this word of life? Well, John tells us there in verse 1, He was from the beginning. He also tells us, uh, verse 2, that he was with the Father from the beginning. We read a a similar construction to this actually in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, verses 2, about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, some people see the beginning here in First John as referring to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or some even go back to the beginning of the world, but I think you could go back even farther than that, the beginning. In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus describes himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. There was never a time when he wasn't. There will never be a time when he isn't. As long as there was God, there was the Word. As long as there was the Father, there was the Son. One of the reasons John's one of the reasons John starts with reminding his readers of the eternal origins of this Word of life may have been because of a man named Serinthus. Now Serinthus was a heretic who taught kind of a variation of gnosticism which held that Jesus was just a regular person born in the regular way, who then grew up into a holy man whom the Spirit of Christ came to at his baptism and then left at his crucifixion. That was what Serenthus taught. And he was leading away some within this church with this false teaching. Irenaeus, Irenaeus one of the early church fathers, tells kind of a funny story. He was um, uh, talking about John who was going into a bathhouse and realizing Cerinthus was inside, ran out of the bathhouse shouting, let us fly lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. That's how they dealt with heretics back then. <clears throat> John means to remind his readers, encourage them, that the word of life was not an invention in time, but has always been. Not only was he from the beginning, John says, but he was with the Father. And again, going back to the Gospel of John 1 verse 2, there's a lot of similarities between these. The word, we're told, was with God in the beginning. Now, lots of books, I think, could be written on that word, with. It isn't just talking about a spatial relationship, like there's God the Father, and there's the Son in the next room, No, the width in both Johns is communicating much more than familiarity or proximity. Rather, it's trying to communicate something closer to eternal, insoluble fellowship. Some numbers are indivisible. You can't divide them with another number without getting a lot of ugly remainders at the end. So the trinity of the Godhead is indivisible. God can't be divided, and not just can't be divided as if, you know, he could, he would if he could, the Father, get out of there, but is Father, Son, and Spirit entirely whole and complete and independent and joyful in himself, the Godhead? And the quality of God's inherent completeness means he can fashion a universe, not because he has to, not because there's something deficient in him that he needs to fill, but because the kind of fellowship enjoyed between Father, Son, and Spirit is the kind that delights for others to be caught up in its peripheral joy. If you think about fellowship as a target you might put the fellowship enjoyed within the Trinity at the center of it. It's the fellowship at the center of everything, at the whole universe, under all, in all, through all, sustaining all. That fellowship is an exclusive fellowship. No one is ever going to participate in that fellowship because no one can ever become a part of the essence of God. But as you move out, you have the fellowship that John shares in and that he's inviting his readers into, and us into, not into the fellowship of the Godhead, but into the eternal fellowship of a family with God as a father, with Jesus, our brother, the spirit, our comforter. John is setting the stage here for the next point, as it is the son of who reveals, who manifests God's word of eternal life to us? This was not a secondhand revelation, not a secondhand message. Jesus, whose words we have in our Bibles, doesn't just bring us news about an eternal life that he heard from someone else who was in the inner ring of fellowship with God. He himself is the message, he is the life. So how does this word of life make himself known? Well, verse 2, he was revealed or made manifest. If your toddler wants a cookie, but the cookies are on the top shelf of your pantry, well, he's never going to get a cookie, is he? Someone is going to need to bring them down, make them accessible so he can reach them. How are temporal, sinful people going to achieve an eternal life that is only and ever with the Father? That's a problem. Not only are we grounded to earth, but we are grounded to an earth immersed in death. Isaiah 25 compares death to a covering that just envelops and suffocates the whole world like a thick, heavy blanket. Covering everything in it. What greater obstacle is there to fellowship with God than the inevitability of death? Whatever life is, wherever it is, we can't get to it. Because we're just stuck in the swamp of death in this world. For Sorinthus and his followers, it was crazy to even talk about divinity breaking into time and space, spirit breaking into matter. Flesh and blood to him and his followers was evil in itself, separated by infinite degrees from God's intervention. But John is writing here to refute all of that. He's saying, maybe even with a measure of surprise in his own voice, the word of life didn't remain Merely a word floating around in the ether like a distant star, it has drawn near, it has been manifested, revealed. Danny Aiken writes on this verse, the contrast in time frame between that which was from the beginning and that which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have touched is then a contrast between eternity and a definite past event. In other words, John and other eyewitnesses saw this deity who has life in himself from eternity, incarnated in time and space history. A definite past event. Some people have wondered how important it is that Jesus' life and work were a definite past event. Does it actually matter whether Jesus lived or died? Isn't the important thing that his principles and rules for living remain intact? Isn't that the main thing? And John is saying, our salvation only has substance insofar as an actual, literal Jesus was revealed and lived and died. If Jesus didn't happen, then eternal life and fellowship with God are still unreachable, still on the top shelf. We are still in our sin still objects of God's wrath, still enslaved to death. That's why John is so adamant here about the importance of eyewitness. He recounts very clearly here, concrete language. He has heard, he's seen, even touched this word of life. John is saying, we saw him get tired. We saw him eat fish. We saw him die and rise again and ascend into heaven. Whatever Serentis is telling you guys, don't believe it. We were eyewitnesses. We saw. And we're telling you, Jesus, the eternal life was revealed. Stott says it best here. The Christian religion is still firmly attached to the historical event of Christ and the witness to which the apostles bore to it. Absolutely tied to it. Jesus verbalizes, gives shape and form to God's word of eternal life through his incarnation. It was revealed. He was revealed in a way that we could understand and appropriate. That's why he's compared to a light in the following section. One who illuminates, one who reveals that which was once inaccessible. John's expecting his readers here to have the creation event in their mind as he's writing these things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, makes light, makes life. And now the one from the beginning is interrupting a world ruled by darkness and death and sin to bring redeeming light and life. Hebrews 2, chapter 13, personifies death as a slave master, You can envision slaves shackled to oars in the lower deck of a war galley. They're hungry, they're weak, they're totally despairing, and yet what drives them on? The fear of their master's whip, right? The fear. No matter what people tell you, no matter how much they try to euphemize death, everyone is under the slavery and the dread and the fear of death. It's what drives technological innovation and medicine and entertainment. We can't escape it because it's our wages for sin. And payday is coming for all of us. It was in the midst of a world under the power of death that Jesus broke into. He puts the principalities and powers to shame. He storms into the galley and throws down the slave's master and frees all the slaves. And John's going to say in chapters 5, verse 12, He who has the Son has life. Life isn't something you get to apart from the Son. There is one narrow bridge across the wide and impossible valley of death, and that bridge is the Son. And so Calvin says, if we consider how miserable and horrible is the state of death, and also what is the kingdom and and immortal glory of God, we shall see that there is something here, he's speaking of these verses, more magnificent that can be expressed in words. We're still on the second question How has this word of life made himself known? John tells us that he's made himself known through his incarnation. But he also says the word of life was made known through proclamation. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, proclamation seems so inefficient, doesn't it? Why doesn't Jesus just call down some lightning or float around the world in a cloud, showing himself to everyone? Why does he vest his authority and his message and his spirit to people like the impulsive Peter? and the fish-smelling John to people like us with all of our issues? Why entrust such precious words to such precarious people? And the answer is, as with so many other things in the gospel, is that God receives the greatest glory and honor through such vehicles. People who can't say that it was their strategy or their charisma, or their huge event that brought people into fellowship. Jesus' incarnation, his manifestation, not only means that people can be free from sin and death, it also means we have a point of reference when we're talking to people about the transcendent and majestic and omnipotent God. If we don't have Jesus, we could never be articulate about God. He's all just beyond us. We should all just be Gnostics. But as we look at the face of Jesus, as we see that face defined to us in his word, we can enter into at least the outskirts of God's glory and express them, not exhaustively, but truly and accurately. As Jesus brought the world the word of life to us through his incarnation, through his suffering, through his testimony. So we now go out into the world and proclaim the word of life to the dying and to the slaves of death. Finally, what's the goal? What does the word of life accomplish as it is received by us? Well, it accomplishes two things. Fellowship and joy so that you too may have fellowship with with us. Verse four, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Just as fellowship isn't incidental to God, it's a part of who he is, the fellowship of the Trinity, so fellowship, John says here, isn't incidental to the Christian life. We have been saved to fellowship with one another. Verse three, And John's going to go on to describe what that fellowship looks like in the following chapters. At its heart is love, sincere love for our brothers and sisters. And real fellowship can only happen among those who truly know what it is to be brought from death to life. Who know what it is for God's grace to pursue a hell-bound man, a hell-bound woman. Perhaps the reason why so much fellowship among churches seems so shallow is because grace has been so underrealized. The more we hold in front of ourselves the free grace we have received through Christ, the more the foundation for fellowship is reinforced. We can have conflict with one another without being afraid it's going to tear us apart. We can confess our sins to one another without fear of being ostracized. We can be known by people and trust them enough to tell us when we're being deceived by sin. We can have conversation that isn't only and ever about weather and sports and kids, which aren't bad, obviously good things, but also about crucial, important, weighty things as well. John says we haven't only been saved to fellowship with one another, but to fellowship with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we talked about adoption last week. I'm not going to rehash everything except to say that though citizenship in a worthy country is a great privilege, being received into a family is the greatest privilege of all. And so many Christians don't realize or live in the riches of adoption. I had a dear old Sunday school teacher who kind of, I think, I hope, unwittingly illustrated the Christian life as kind of a pyramid scheme. You know, you become a disciple and you tell two people and then they become disciples and then they each tell two people and that just multiplies and multiplies. And I thought, as a young boy, that seems like a lot of work, and why do I want to do this again? But see, I was thinking that way because the end of the Christian life was being presented primarily as what we can do for God. But as I said last week, the mission is a byproduct of what should be the end of the Christian life, namely fellowship with the Father and with His Son. That's where we find the comfort and the power and the resource for mission. Because that's the kind of family you can't help telling people about. David said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That he would rather be a doorkeeper right on the fringe of God's fellowship than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That is where David was most at home. Have you grown tired in your Christian walk? Struggling with sin? Struggling in the world? Struggling with apathy? Struggles everywhere? Where do we go in the midst of struggles and trials? Where do we go to find solace? TV? Facebook? Buying things? Another gadget from Amazon? Or do we refresh ourselves in the company of family? I don't mean your earthly family. They can be of some comfort. But I'm talking about a much greater rest and privilege. A family who won't misunderstand or ignore or be too busy. Our friend and brother, Jesus Christ, our God and Father. That is the end of proclamation. Fellowship into a family. I had a roommate when I was in seminary from Martinique. Once in a while, he would get a call from home from a family or friend, and you could just see his whole face light up. His whole disposition changed. Coming out of that conversation, he was almost a totally different person, just rejuvenated by the reminder of home, even though it was just a voice over the line. And the line is crackly now for Christians, isn't it? we see through a glass dimly sometimes the heavens seem like brass like nothing's getting through but one day all of that is going to change when the final form of our adoption is realized in sight in once again being able to hear and see and touch the word of life that is the goal of the gospel to return us to the life and fellowship which Adam and Eve enjoyed, and probably greater than that, walking with God in a garden temple. Joy, finally. Yarbrough, he's a commentator on, on this chapter. He suggests that there are doxological overtones to the life as it's being expressed here. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that if we get this, if we understand how great it is that through Christ we participate in new life and fellowship here and an eternal life to come, the appropriate response is joy. Joy is where theology ought to end. Know that? If it stops short of that, we haven't gone far enough. And it's so sad when you pick pick up so many so-called devotionals that are so heavy on telling us to be joyful and so light on explaining what it is that we should be joyful about. But that's theology. The assumption there is that doctrines like the incarnation, like the Trinity, like adoption are just too much for ordinary Christians who really need anecdotes and chicken soups for the librarian's soul or whatever it is. John is saying here, no. Now there's debate on the best way to translate this. You probably see the footnote there. Between our joy and your joy, the New English Bible translates it in a way that I think captures the thrust of it. We write this, these things, in order that the joy of us all may be complete. John 4:36 talks about the sower and the reaper being able to rejoice together in the harvest. And I think that's what's being communicated here. John's highest joy will be realized as the recipients of his letter find their highest joy in the word of life. His purpose is right in writing is yes to warn them against serpentus and other false teachers. Yes, it's to establish tests for genuine conversion. But ultimately, he says in verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy and your joy may be complete. The word complete here means a filling up to the brim and overflowing. That is John's hope and ambition. And that is the hope and ambition of everyone who proclaims the word of life. Not just that you would hear it, acknowledge it, File it away somewhere, but receive it. Live in and be warmed by it. Perhaps you were sitting here this morning outside of fellowship with God. Outside of eternal life. Outside of Christ. You're trying to reach out for what you imagine to be the most important pursuits. But the Bible is very clear. But not only have you been made for fellowship with your creator, the consequences of rejecting that offer of fellowship comes with serious and eternal consequences. The word of life has come down. It is by God's good grace now within reach. Don't stay on the outside looking in. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the word you have preserved and given to us in this world with devils filled that constantly threatens to undo us. And yet we read in your word of a life, of a light that was revealed, that was manifested. Lord, would you help us to take hold of that life, live in the privilege of it. I pray that there would be No one here this morning who remains, insists on staying outside of your fellowship. You have been so gracious to us. Help us with these things, I pray in your name. Amen.